Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Today, we're bringing you another Explained episode, where we take a question we get frequently from our listeners and take a deep dive to explain it. If you have any questions you'd like us to cover on upcoming Explained episodes about the recent election, our mission, how government works, or anything else, you can reach us, as always, by emailing podcast at lincolnproject.us. So we've gotten lots of questions that have to do with the nuts and bolts of how we as a country go from election day to inauguration day. And today we're going to take a look at what happens between when voters cast their ballots and when a new president is sworn in. So let's start on election day. This is always the Tuesday following the first Monday in November. Millions of people head to local polling locations or cast ballots by mail. Now, when voters cast their ballots in the presidential election, they don't vote for the candidate of their choosing, but they actually vote for a slate of electors, as I'm sure you've heard, selected by the candidate in each state. So in this election, voters cast their ballot for the electors for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Other than two exceptions, which are Nebraska and Maine, the slate of electors who win the popular vote in each state cast their votes for president when the Electoral College meets in December. So the rules for voting and processing ballots vary from state to state, but the process for counting ballots is similar in every state. Some states begin counting mail-in ballots before Election Day, but for the most part, ballots are counted at the county seat after polls close on Election Day. In many places, votes are counted quickly, but as we've seen this year, it can take days or even weeks for all votes to be tabulated. This isn't unusual. It normally takes several days to tabulate the votes, but it took longer to count this year because of the unprecedented number of mail-in ballots cast due to the pandemic, which we've talked a lot on this podcast, especially with Mike Madrid. Once the votes are counted by local officials, they're sent to a board for certification. Now, these boards are usually bipartisan, and the members are either elected or appointed by county leaders. Unless there is a problem with the vote count, this group certifies the vote tally at the county level and then sends it to the state for final certification. So just as an aside, because it's pretty newsworthy, county election boards don't usually receive a lot of attention. But this year, the Wayne County Board of Canvassers in Michigan, as everyone has heard, drew national attention when they certified their election results. Now, after that four-person board certified the results at the county level, two members of that board received personal phone calls from President Trump himself and then later attempted to rescind their votes. So I'm sure you're aware we've talked a lot on this podcast about the many ways Trump has attempted to undermine democracy for his entire tenure in office. But the sitting president attempting to sway election officials who are deep in the machinery of the democratic process of civil service is not only unprecedented, but truly, truly dangerous for the republic. So once these county-by-county results reach the state level, there's another layer of checks, usually a state canvassing board or the secretary of state or a small group of officials who certify the election for that state. Now, federal law requires governors to prepare official certificates to report the popular vote in each state. 
that document must carry the seal of that state. The governor and state officials must then get these results in by the safe harbor deadline to ensure that the electors for the winning party get to vote in the Electoral College. So that safe harbor deadline is always six days before the Electoral College meets. This year, it falls on December 8th. If all challenges are not resolved and the results are not certified by the safe harbor deadline, the House and Senate are not obligated to uphold those votes when they meet in January. But we'll come back to that later. Now, as you know, the Electoral College is the group that officially, that is legally, votes on the candidates for president. Remember that when you cast your ballot, you didn't technically vote for Biden. You voted for the electors he chose in your state. That slate of electors who won the popular vote in each state meets on the Monday after the second Wednesday in December, and this year that falls on December 14th. They'll usually meet in their home state capital to formally cast their vote for president and vice president of the United States. Now, there are all kinds of questions about what these electors can and can't do, what state legislatures can and can't do with their own slate of electors. And we're going to dig into all of the specifics of the Electoral College on an upcoming Explained episode. But once the vote occurs in each state, the electors sign certificates that get sent to the president of the U.S. Senate, who is the vice president of the United States, and the secretary of state in their state, the archivist of the United States, and the judge of the U.S. district court in the district where they meet. Now, those final results must be received by December 23rd. On January 6th at 1 p.m., the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate meet for a joint session of Congress to count the electoral votes and the vice president presides as president of the Senate. Members of each chamber are able to object to the returns from each state as they are announced, and that objection must be made in writing by at least one member of each chamber. If that happens, the joint session recesses, and the House and Senate hold separate debates and vote separately on whether to accept or reject that member's objection. This objection must be accepted by both the House and the Senate for the contested votes to be excluded. So that means that even if Trump loyalists in both the House and Senate attempt to throw out those legitimate votes, which you can imagine they might, they would need a majority in both the Senate and the House for those votes to actually be thrown out. So while we won't know which party will control the Senate because of the Georgia runoffs, we do know that Democrats obviously will continue to hold their majority in the House. And that as Martha Stewart would say, is a good thing. Once the votes are counted and a candidate receives the 270 electoral votes required to become president, the vice president then announces the results and officially declares the winners elected president and vice president. Then, on January 20th, the newly elected president and vice president are sworn in. The ceremony is usually held on the west front of the U.S. Capitol. The vice president takes the oath first. Then the president is sworn in at noon and officially takes on the responsibilities of the President of the United States of America. Typically, the new White House staff is able to start working in the late afternoon, and Joe Biden will return to the West Wing and be greeted as Mr. President for the first time.
Thanks to everyone at home for listening. I hope this helped you understand the timeline and the process for the president-elect to become the president of the United States. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.